This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me to discuss President Biden's American Families Plan proposal out today, along with his American Jobs Plan, is Ms. Nicole Jorwick, Senior Director of Public Policy at the ARC. Nicole, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, David. Glad to be with you. I appreciate your time, Nicole, particularly I'm sure it's a busy time, of course. Ms. Jorick's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, this interview was advertised as a discussion of anticipated policy proposals by the Biden administration concerning elder care, and we will discuss those under the Biden administration's American Jobs Plan. However, today, the president announced a 15-page outline of his $1.8 trillion American Families Plan proposal, which we'll also discuss. Both proposals will be the topic of the president's speech this evening before a joint session of Congress. So I'll limit uh, my opening comments to that. We'll first start with the American uh, Families uh, Plan, which, again, is moreover about um, uh, child care. So just on, on provisions uh, beyond paid family and medical leave and child-related tax cuts, today's proposal focuses on universal preschool, free community college, and expanded nutritional program policies. Uh, I will add as well, the absence of universal daycare along with no long-term care and paid leave policies largely explains why compared to similar countries, women are significantly underrepresented in the U.S. workforce. I'll also note a recent survey found one in five Americans, moreover women, survey uh, served as a caregiver rather for an adult or child with a health or functional need in 2020. So let's leave it at that and let's go right to it. Uh, but before we do, uh, Nicole, uh, for listeners who are unfamiliar, can you provide a brief uh, description of the ARC's work? Sure. The ARC is a civil rights organization um, when we promote and protect the rights of individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Uh, we represent individuals, families, as well as service providers. Great. Thank you. Let's go to first again, the American Families Plan. As I noted, the administration put out a 15-page outline of it. Uh, I'll let you uh, begin wherever, although I'll prompt you by uh, there, there's a f fair number of provisions, but the, the, the larger ones seem to be these three that I noted, universal preschool, free community college, and expanded nutritional programs. So could you uh, provide some details regarding those? Sure, sure. So the, the plan that came out, the American Families Plan, uh, is part of what they're they're calling working on the care economy. And so the big focus was um, around making sure that we have expansion of college opportunities so that people can have more opportunities uh, in terms of their future employment opportunities. For nutritional assistance, there has been obviously a great deal of stress on state SNAP programs. A lot of people, too, don't realize that, that how many people with disabilities and aging adults rely on those nutritional benefits. So there's definitely uh, really important components there. Just like with the other plan that I know we'll talk about, there were not a ton of really specific policy uh, plans to operationalize these goals. But what was really important was to see that there is this focus on expanding access to childcare, 
Um, also, the paid leave provisions are extremely important. We're very also very glad to see a, a House committee release a new proposal this week as well. The pandemic has obviously left families scrambling, trying to make impossible choices between work and being there for families, family members who lost services. And we've really known as a disability community, but also with childcare, that we all need to come together because too often, whether we're talking about nutritional assistance or um, better education and community college, childcare, paid leave, or the other issue that we're going to talk about, which is um, uh, care for people with disabilities and aging adults, so often those issues were fighting for scraps at the bottom. And so the fact that all of these issues are being addressed either through the American Families Plan or the American Jobs Plan is really going to be a huge uh, economic recovery piece and also a huge um, boost to the care economy that's so greatly needed. Thank you. I'll just uh, add relative to the document, uh, the proposal promises universal quality preschool for all three and four-year-olds, free uh, tuition for a two-year community college uh, diploma, also making college more affordable, particularly for students at historically black colleges, tribal colleges and universities, um, and Hispanic-serving uh, institutions. And um, uh, relative to the tax credits, there are several. Um, and I'll just note, this is the uh, the child tax credit, the earned income tax credit, and the child and dependent care tax credit. Um so uh, always, of course, in these conversations, the question is, as I noted in the intro, this is this American Families Plan is is costing out at one point eight trillion dollars. Uh, you know where I'm going, Nicole. How does this get paid for? Sure. Um, the family, the the families plan, and as well as the jobs plan that was released at the end of last month, a lot of that will be uh, will be negotiated. But I know that there's whether it's repealing the 2017 tax cuts, raising tax rates on businesses. Um, when it comes to spraying the economy, I don't really know exactly how the offsets are going to look, but ultimately it's about making sure that we're making investments where we need to. Um, those kind of conversations and negotiations are a little bit above my head and certainly will be easier to have, frankly, when we have more policy details about how these proposals are going to be operationalized. It's a lot harder to have conversations about offsets and how it's going to be paid for until we know what we're paying for. And so um, I won't go into any more detail specifically there, but I just think that that's an important thing um, to think about. And the tax pieces of this, a lot of it, so we're talking about one, at least $1.3 trillion dollars that could just come from reversing those tax cuts. So, you know, that still leaves us three and a half um, for the other packages, but um, we'll get there. <laughs> right. Good point. The specifics, of course, are uh, uh, obviously important on the uh, tax rate for the wealthiest Americans. So he plans, the proposal is to pay for this by going back to the uh, previous December 17 uh, tax um, marginal uh, tax rate, which was 39.6% for the wealthiest. Um, uh, so to restore the top tax bracket to what it was pre-December uh, 17, uh, loopholes include um, uh, uh, making the tax on, on uh, capital gains and dividends uh, ordinary income or for the wealthiest, uh, instead of paying 20-something percent, it would go to 396 
there's a provision to fund the IRS so the IRS does a better job in auditing and capturing uh, accrued taxes. Uh, and then, of course, there's the favorite if you follow Congress, and that is to repeal the carried interest loophole for hedge fund partners, which has been discussed at least uh, for 15 to 20 years. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, there is quite a bit here under the, again, the American Families uh, Plan, uh, quite a bit of detail, though you're right, it's bulleted in outline form. And so it remains to be seen how this gets um, uh, negotiated uh, on the Hill. Let's mm-hmm. go to um, the American Jobs Plan, which, of course, is more about uh, elder care provisions. Uh, um, so let's let's go to that. That had been previously mm-hmm. outlined or bulleted. And again, as I noted in the intro uh, to this, this has a lot to do with, uh, and you recorded in the New York Times on this, two um, uh, correlated issues. One is, of course, expanding uh, home and community-based waivers. And of course, in order to do that, you have to, of course, develop workforce such that you have uh, laborers to actually deliver uh, those services. So again, uh, could you provide an outline of the jobs plan? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So the American jobs plan came out on um, March 31st, and it's a lot of people to think of it as the infrastructure plan more broadly because there was a lot of traditional infrastructure. But the piece that I'm going to talk about and focus on the most is around the care infrastructure. Um, and the the funding that was included in the American Jobs Plan was $400 billion to expand that infrastructure. But before I kind of go into that, I kind of always want to explain the broader issue of long-term services and supports or LTSS. Um, because before I explain that current the current crisis that we're in, it's just important to have that background. It's a broad term. Obviously, I know you know you have it, David, but for, for listeners, LTSS is a term that encapsulates both nursing home care or care in other large congregate care settings like institutions um, or ICFs. And it's traditionally in those settings are have been known as long term care. LTSS, though, also incorporates and includes home and community based services or HCBS. When it comes to LTSS broadly, the main game in town as the payer for those services is Medicaid. A lot of people think Medicare may have them covered when they need those supports when they get older, but Medicare does not cover LTSS outside of short-term rehabilitation. So really, it is Medicaid. Um, And Medicaid is a program that has strict income and asset eligibility limits meaning that aging adults may have to spend down in order to qualify for those services that they need, and people with disabilities must live in poverty in order to continue to access those services. I bring that up because, again, Medicaid is the only game in town. While a select few, less than 13%, may have private long-term care insurance, most families are left to private pay for these desperately needed services, or often, too, family members themselves are left to fill fill in the gaps in the system. So those services are obviously important, but where we must focus and where the American Jobs Plan focus is on the expansion of access and infrastructure for the delivery of those home and community-based services. The reason that it's important to focus there and the reason that that President Biden focused there and he he brought up the issue of waiting lists in in some of his remarks, right now there's an almost at least a million people on waiting lists for these critical home and community-based services And in order to pull those people off of the waiting list, you need to build the infrastructure to serve those individuals who are who are either being served by family members 
or who are being are stuck in those large congregate settings where infection and death rates um, were extremely high during COVID. And so what um, the American Jobs Plan does is it addresses access to services, but it also addresses the workforce crisis. The workforce crisis when it comes to serving older adults and people with disabilities is a decades old problem, but it was really highlighted um, and punctuated by the pandemic. The national average wage for these, we call direct care workers, that can include everything from a home care worker, a direct support professional that works with people with IDD, a personal care attendant, a peer support specialist for people with mental health issues. The, the average wage for that those employees is $11 per hour. And this is a workforce that's predominantly made up of women of color. You mentioned at the top of the program how much of this is relying on women. It's also predominantly um, focused on women of color as well because they are the workforce that are providing these services, um, whether it's elder care, but also child care, and uh, et cetera. But it's all a big problem because um, in many places, they're making less than minimum wage. And most people don't understand that the reason uh, wages are so low is because of Medicaid rates. They have been stagnant um, without a significant federal investment. And so that's really what's needed to address the issue. And so what um, President Biden outlined is a multi-year and eight-year um, investment totaling $400 billion to both expand access to services and to create more of those direct care jobs and to pay better the existing direct care workforce. So it's really, really huge. Um, it's desperately needed. The rescue plan, which was the, you know, quick COVID package at the beginning of the year had a one-year funding bump of 12.7 billion. I've been equating that to like filling in holes on a sinking ship, whereas this $400 billion investment, no pun intended, but will really build a bridge to a time when everybody has the access to the services they need when they age or if they're people with a person with a disability. Thank you. Just to say on the workforce, um, I'll note that 25% of Americans will be age 65 or older uh, by 2040. And this workforce demand, uh, because a, a significant percent of this 25% will need uh, support services, uh, the demand on this workforce will grow by 2 million uh, jobs over the next decade plus uh, to care mm -hmm. for uh, these seniors. In fact, I should say, uh, as an aside, uh, my ability actually to produce this podcast is largely explained by the fact for the past several years I've been able to afford on my own an informal caregiver for my mother, who is absolutely phenomenal. And I will say that my mother would not be alive absent her care uh, today. And not surprisingly, she is a African-American female. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. uh, the work they do is, is, is unbelievably important uh, and necessary. So let me go to, uh, you mentioned the weight, you said a million. I think formally the count is 800,000, but because there's such long waiting lists, people who apply or, or add their name to the waiting list are discouraged. So the guesstimate is over a million and a half from studies I've read. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you some specifics uh, on this. Uh, mm -hmm. There is also, uh, and just to note on Medicaid, uh, per your point, again, it's a common misperception that long-term care is offered by Medicare. It is not. Uh, it's mostly mm -hmm. paid for by Medicaid. In fact, Medicaid pays for 40% of nursing home care. Uh, relative um, uh, to these workers, 
let me ask you, you'll remember this, President Biden tried to add this, uh, these workers or extend the labor, uh, the Fair Labor Rather Standards Act of 1938, uh, or those provisions to home care workers. I'm assuming that issue will come back. Oh, you're talking about overtime protection. Correct. Yes. And yes. Yep. I was, I've been, I was in DC already then. So yes, I recall. Um, that will be an issue, but again, that's going to be less of an issue because of this investment. So what, what David, what you're talking about is the fact that there had been some concerns and this is frankly why it's so important that these pieces are riding together because sometimes there are concerns if we invest too much in the workforce, whether it's administratively by um, making those changes to ensure that the um, workforce is being protected, that it would somehow lead to um, less services or or states uh, limiting eligibility. And frankly, that we did see some of that happening, um, whether when some of these pieces have happened either with state level legislation or those administrative actions. And so from a from a disability community perspective, um, we just want to ensure that we want to make sure that workers are receiving a family sustaining wage, but that that doesn't in any way impact access to services, which is why the fact that this investment is so big is so important. And frankly, also groups that haven't always worked in lockstep really are. So the disability community is working much close, more closely with the aging community um, as well as labor to make sure that we're that rising tides lift all boats and that we're not inadvertently, obviously never with bad intentions, um, doing something that would hinder one side of the equation. Okay, thank you. So relative to uh, caregivers' wages, uh, the idea is to see them increase with along with stronger benefits. I've read opportunity to unionize and the development of registered apprenticeships uh, and pre-apprenticeships as well. So make these jobs um, higher pay and higher quality as well. I do yep. have a, a, a related question, and I'll ask and ask you also to explain this, but the proposal includes expanding the Money Follows the Person yes. program. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people don't know what this is, so uh, explain, please. It's one of my favorite topics. I've been lobbying on it for five years, and I'm glad you brought it up because I can't believe I didn't mention it. So one of the only specific um, specific policy um, provisions that was in, that was included in the American Jobs Plan is making the Medicaid Money Follows the Person program permanent. The Money Follows the Person program is a program that actually was first authorized in 2005 under um, President H. W. Bush, or no, sorry, <laughs> President W. Bush. Right. I'm thinking of the ADA. Um, and it, in 2005, since then, there have been 11. <laughs> reauthorizations, unfortunately, eight recently have been short-term reauthorizations. But the program fundamentally, what it does is provides 100% FMAP or 100% of federal dollars for one year, for the first year of moving someone, whether it's an aging individual or a, per, a person with a disability, out of a nursing home or other large congregate setting and into the community. That one year of funding is really important because so often the reason people get stuck in those settings is the transitional costs. Uh, sometimes you have to pay for both service service settings for a while. Um, it also the money falls the person program also has some flexibilities. Medicaid can general cannot be spent on housing, but through money falls the person or MFP, um, it can be spent on things like first and last month rent. Again, just to stabilize the housing because so often why people get stuck too is because the housing piece is not there. So this is a program that since 2005 has moved over 110,000 individuals. Um, 
it back into their homes and community. It also, uh, most importantly, provided, provides amazing uh, outcome measures. The quality of life, um, personal outcomes go up for individuals who are served. And also it shows cost savings. It shows a 22% per Medicaid beneficiary per month savings for the Medicaid program. Um, and so it's a really important program and making it permanent is um, going to be really important to um, go alongside this other investment, the rest of the investment of the $400 billion, because then states will all, always know that they have that additional federal funding to make those transitions. Thank you. Just so the, uh, just to remind listeners and listeners of this podcast will remember, I say this frequently, uh, most recently probably in my conversation with Judy Fader, and that is uh, persons in need of long-term uh, services and supports typically are seen as uh, Medicare beneficiaries, but that is not the case. Well over a third of those in need of support services long-term are under the age of 65. Uh, so that I think is important to note that it's not, should be not thought of as just an elder care uh, benefit or issue. Absolutely. Let's let's go to uh, the sausage making here. And this, of course, is the process. So the president will deliver this speech this evening, uh, mm -hmm. outlining these uh, care economy proposals in some. Uh, it's up to the Congress, obviously, to draft legislation concerning home and community-based waivers. Uh, uh, Representative Dingell from Michigan has had a bill, I believe, with Sherrod Brown on the Senate side. So there is mm -hmm. related legislation uh, that has been proposed. Uh, what's your general sense of uh, let's start with the um, uh, American Jobs Plan provisions. Uh, what's your sense of uh, congressional support uh, for these? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the thing that's really important to note is that I actually think that when it comes broadly to the issue of home and community-based services and expanding access to them and also dealing with the workforce issues, there's a there's quite a bit of bipartisan support. Um However, because the American Jobs Plan and likely the American Families Plan, it's it's very likely that that will go through a budget reconciliation process that ultimately ends up becoming very partisan, no matter which party is leading. Um, you know, we'll see how, you know, how that actually plays out. But the the legislation that, that you mentioned, um, it's the HCBS Access Act of 2021, and it was released on March 16th by Representative Dingell and by Senators Hassan, Brown, and Casey. Um, and that bill is not likely to be the vehicle because it's probably too big because that bill is really kind of our long-term goal, which would make that because home and community-based services are optional under the Medicaid program. We call that an institutional bias because institutional services are mandatory under the federal Medicaid law while home and community-based services are optional. That's why there can be that waiting list. Um, and so this would eliminate the waiting list. It would make home and community-based services mandatory, um, but it would do a lot more than that. It would create a federal floor for services. And so it's it's not likely that that's going to be the vehicle, but the fact that there is um, a lot of congressional interest in HCBS um, from you know both parties and also from all parts of each party, um, it makes us hopeful that we can not only get this $400 billion um, through the right way and what that's going to look like operationally, we're not sure. It's very likely that it's going to look something like the American Rescue Plan Medicaid funding looked like, and that was a 10% increase in federal spending for one year. Um, so this would obviously be more than 10%, and also um, it's over an eight-year period, um, but, but 
I have, I haven't seen anything. We don't know what it's going to look like. Um, we just know that we're in lockstep, making sure that it does deal, deal with both access to services as well as the workforce issues. So just to be clear, when we say expanding these waivers, home and community-based, what we mean is a 100% federal match to pay for those services, correct? In the HCBS Access Act, that's what the bill is, yes. Okay. That's, we, we do not believe that that's probably what will be operationalized for the $400 billion just because we don't think $400 billion is enough, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the, But the HCBS Access Act does include 100% of federal dollars. To move so that people can be supported, so that the infrastructure can be built. But that'll be a lot cheaper and a lot easier to get to because of this $400 billion investment. Right. Um, relative to bipartisan support, the uh, polling, public polling data on this is, is very supportive. I saw numbers yes. as high as north of 70%, correct? Correct. Yep. And, and, even, and that also showed bipartisan support as well, the recent polling numbers. So you did mention reconciliation. I won't go into that. The process on the Senate side, again, gets hyper-partisan. Um, <laughs> let, let, me, let me ask you while we have a, a few minutes here. There is a larger, much larger discussion since I mentioned Professor Fader on long-term mm-hmm. care policy. Um, mm-hmm. So this is, in a sense, at best, both the jobs and the families plan. Well, more the jobs plan than the families plan. But the jobs plan provisions are are very targeted – um, this still leaves us without a a non catastrophic long term care policy in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a much tougher nut to crack, bigger issue. Uh, mm-hmm. But there is coincident to all of this that's going on. There is that discussion. What are you hearing about um, that moving forward? And as listeners will recall, I did interview uh, again Judy Fader twice on this issue over the last year. But what's your sense of this larger, uh, when we mm-hmm. talk about elder care, long-term care policy? Yeah, I mean, so, uh, and Judy is amazing uh, and great to work with, and I've learned so much from her. Uh, I think that, um, so I talked about the fact that Medicaid is really the only game in town and the limitations of that program. The limitations of that program are exactly why we should, we, we need to be developing things outside of the Medicaid program. Um, and obviously, as you know, the Affordable Care Act did include the class act that was a, um, a cash model long term care mm-hmm. um, support. So I think that, in, you know, it's really, I think, ultimately going to be a multi prong approach and also doing things on a parallel track. It's going to be making sure that we are um, fixing institutional bias in the Medicaid program, making sure that people being served by Medicaid are getting what they need, aren't being overserved or underserved. Um, and then, you know, potentially looking at Medicaid buy-in options so that people who can pay for some of those services, especially for those long-term services and supports can, but ultimately also it's about creating something outside of Medicaid. And so there's a, there's a lot of different proposals out there. Um, Representative Pallone, who um, is the head of the Ener- energy and commerce that um, oversees obviously all things healthcare and Medicaid, um, uh, has a, had a discussion draft in 2018 that would have added a Part E to Medicare. Um, there's another proposal, but but the great thing about um, Representative Pallone's proposal is that it included both over 65 and under 65. Um, there are, there's another proposal right now that's out there called the Wish Act, but 
the disability community can't really get behind it because it only it does have a catastrophic benefit, but it only um, deals with people that are over 65. And so I think when it comes to, you know, what we're going to do with long term care policy, I think what's great is that um, the aging and disability communities are working together a lot more. And so whatever comes together really has to kind of work work for everybody. We don't want to make we want to make sure that Medicaid's available for people that need it, but also that whatever alternative that we are building um, makes works for both under 65 and over 65. Right. Accommodates everyone in need. Absolutely. Maybe yeah. my, my last question with our time is not surprisingly, uh, the pandemic has exposed uh, care quality concerns mm-hmm. in skilled nursing facilities. Um, these proposals uh, under the jobs plan um would 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 you agree indirectly help mitigate the problems we're having in sniff quality um i think it could i think that i mean ultimately what building access to hcbs is is building the alternative to those settings right, right? um but I, I think that when when if states are looking at quality overall, then they're going to look at quality in all settings. So it, it certainly could. I also know, I mean, the, the the ARC's perspective and just generally, we know that there are people being served in um, in SNFs and in um, ICFs. And so we want to make sure that those individuals are receiving quality services and also that those workers are um, are uh, being uh, making a living wage. But that can't be um, in order to to like keep beds open, right? It just needs to make sure we it, there's a balance. And so, I think there's a possibility. The reason I'm bringing this up is I think that there's a possibility that you know a small piece of the 400 billion or an additional add-on attachment of like five billion dollars or something goes into those those pieces because we do want to make sure that we're not leaving any, anybody behind. But to your original question, I do think that. If we're looking at um, making sure that all services are are providing good outcomes and are focused on quality, then that certainly would impact both institutional settings as well as community-based settings. Right. the The overarching goal here is, of course, uh, aging. The goal of aging in place uh, to the yep. extent that that's possible. Yeah. So, so Nicole, that, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, yes, we know that over 90% of aging adults want to age in place. And we know that people with disabilities would rather wait for a decade on a waiting list than go into an institution. So we have all the data we need, and now we just have to build the infrastructure to get there. Yeah, execution, absolutely. So, Nicole, again, I know you're having a busy uh, day and uh, month and next month and the following as well. So I appreciate (laughs) your time on this. Uh, Let's hope the jobs and families plan Uh, gains traction after tonight uh, and see what the Congress can uh, flesh out on these in legislation. So with that, thank you again. Thank you so much, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.